Let's take a look at hope, shall we? Uh, biblical hope. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And uh, while you're doing that, um, you may notice on the screen soon, if we get the slide up, that I'm calling uh, the sermon series not just Christmas hope, but we're calling it ridiculous hope. And I've been having a lot of fun with that word ridiculous because it's one of those words that can have very different connotations, right? Because um, ridiculous can mean it's just so good, it's so wonderful, it's so too good to be true, but you realize it is true, this hope that we have in this newborn baby, this hope at Christmas time, it's so wonderfully, unbelievably incredible that it's just ridiculous. So ridiculous can mean that, can it? But then in that same word, on the other side of the coin, there's that other use of ridiculous, that not only is it too good to be true, but it really is too good to be true. And it's the ridiculous that comes from maybe someone, oh, who doesn't know the Lord or someone who's struggling to seek the Lord or maybe seeking the Lord and they hear things like virgin birth. And they hear things like a guiding star or a group of shepherds, or angelic visits. And they start to think maybe, you know what, have, have we Christians, or have you Christians, have you lost your minds? Because those things, you're going to put your hope there? That is a ridiculous hope. And so, one way or the other, chances are, um, maybe you feel both sides sometimes, depending on circumstances, but chances are, one way or the other, or sometimes a mixture, uh, that Christmas hope is ridiculous. Ridiculously good, or it's just ridiculously impossible. And one reason, one reason why I think um, Christmas hope is ridiculous in these senses one driving reason it seems to me is have you noticed that God often works in ridiculous ways uh, seemingly ridiculous to us but on most human reasoning objective standards I think he works in ridiculous ways doesn't he ridiculously good but also ridiculously strange We've just been through the book of Esther. How many ridiculous things did God have in Esther? Does it ever strike you? How many Bible stories, when you read the story, do you kind of look at, at, at how God is um, achieving his will? At how God is keeping his promises? At how God is faithful in the lives of his people? Don't some of those things just strike you? Well, that's just ridiculous. And so one reason I think the, uh, the hope at Christmas is a ridiculous hope is, is God often works in ridiculous ways. And one of the questions that I hope to be asking and I'll be sharing with you and asking with you uh, this Christmas together as we look at this ridiculous hope of Christmas is this. How will we respond 
how will we respond to the ridiculous hope of Christmas? How will you? And to help us with that answer, or maybe to help frame the answer as we consider ourselves how we'll respond again this Christmas, I want to take a look in the next few weeks at how many of the people that first Christmas or leading up to that first Christmas, how did they respond uh, to some of this ridiculousness? And first up is a man named Joseph, and we'll read about his story when he first got some ridiculous news in Matthew 1. Your Bibles are open in Matthew 1. Matthew opens, of course, with that long genealogy of Jesus, and then he gets to the heart of the matter, and he begins by talking about the birth of Jesus, and really, pretend you're hearing this for the first time, we hear it so often, when we hear this verse with first ears, this is one of the most ridiculous statements that Matthew opens up with. Listen to what he says. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child. Well, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? And then he piles on. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. What? Are you kidding me? Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, a little bit of contextual context there that will help us, I think, in those verses and as we continue on this morning. I need to teach you about marriage, at least in the time of Jesus. In that time, similar to today but different, marriage had two stages. The first, a stage of betrothal. There's a biblical word, betrothal. Uh, we might call it engagement. And then, of course, the wedding itself. Let me talk about betrothal a little bit first, or the pledge to be married. Engagement, I even hesitated to use it, because engagement, at least as we understand it, is far too weak a word as to what betrothal was in Jesus' day between a man and woman to be married. Because their engagement, their betrothal, was a legally binding covenant. It was as legally binding as the wedding and the marriage itself. There was a formal agreement made before witnesses that you are now betrothed to one another. The couple, as you can see in the couple verses that we just read, even in the betrothal engagement period, they were called and referred to even as husband and wife, even though they weren't married yet, and to break the engagement, even to break the betrothal, even to break the engagement, you had to go through the steps to divorce, even though they weren't legally married yet. Can we imagine? We do things a little bit differently today, yes? Now, the bride, the girl in Jesus' day would be 12 to 13 years old when she was betrothed, and that's because that's the age that she had her first period typically, 
That event celebrated as a sign from God that, praise God, she's now ready to partner with God in creating new life. And the young man, a best guess for the age of a young man, at least during the time of Jesus, is that he'd be around 18 years old when he was betrothed to be married. Now that man's age is more of an educated guess than the woman's age. It varies depending on where we are in history. But 18 for the young man is the best guess during the time of Jesus based on all historical resources. What else? During this engagement, that's the time where three main gifts would be given. Maybe an interesting parable with the three gifts brought to Jesus, but we'll save that for another time. But three gifts would be given. First, the bride price. And the bride price would be paid to the family of the bride. And it was symbolic, at least, of giving that family some compensation for the great loss of their daughter. That gift is the one that would seal the covenant. A second gift during the betrothal was called the dowry. The dowry was paid from the father of the bride to the groom or to the bride to help them get off to a good financial start. If you were lucky or blessed, particularly blessed as a young couple, you might even get a few sheep or an ox or a cow to help you get off to a good start. And then the third gift, um, something more personal, something more intimate. Uh, it would come from the, gra- uh, from the groom, from the uh, groom-to-be. And the personal gift would be given from the groom to his bride-to-be, And that would become, or that was a symbol of their mutual commitment to the relationship. So all that going on during their engagement or during the uh, betrothal. The couple did not live together during this time. Uh, No cohabitation. Um, Each remained living with their own families. And there was no sexual relationship between them during this time. Even though they were now legally bound by covenant to be married, and even to end things would require a divorce. And that's betrothal. Then, about one year later, there would be the wedding ceremony. And it typically would take place in the home of the bride's family, and another even more formal agreement was made, and Then family and friends would uh, take turns uh, blessing the young couple. Um, And then, next, something that still makes me shake my head every time I read about it and study it, uh, the couple would go off into the bridal chamber to consummate the marriage while everybody else waited for them. Here's where... Here's where we can all be very glad that certain customs have changed across time and culture. And then the couple would emerge and they would be joyfully and proudly showing a bed sheet with a spot of blood on it as proof of the bride's virginity. And everybody would cheer. Wow, can you imagine? And out of that cheer was also a sign now, boy, the reception could begin. And they would party for a week, an entire week. And then after that week of celebration, uh, the newlyweds would now return to the place the groom had prepared for his bride in his father's house. Sounds like one of Jesus' parables, doesn't it? 
He's certainly drawing on this custom. The groom would take his bride, return her to the place that he had prepared for her in his father's house, and they would live together. So, now, back to Joseph. All of this, of course, is well known to Joseph. And all of this has got to be on his mind, right? As he first hears that news, however he first heard it, it doesn't say, but as he first heard it, that Mary is pregnant. Sometime during their one-year betrothal or engagement. How would that news hit you? If your bride-to-be, if your groom-to-be were expecting with someone else. And Joseph, of course, he knows one thing for sure, right? He knows he's not the father. That much he knows. And so what he's thinking in the day is probably adultery. So wait a minute, that's too strong a word. They're only engaged. No. Even though they're only engaged by law in Jesus' day, if an engaged person is sexually unfaithful, it was considered adultery. So strong was that betrothal, that engagement covenant. And so by legal right, when Joseph hears that news, Joseph could have gone public with what he thought was Mary's infidelity. This gave him the right to publicly revoke the covenant they had made. Revoking a covenant was also a public ceremony. You'd gather witnesses and you'd hold up the written agreement. You'd say, you know what, and you'd tear it up or you'd burn it and say, I'm no longer bound by this covenant because the other party to the covenant has broken it in this way. And you would be released. And to be released from it required some sort of public event. And so by right... Joseph could have taken that path. And here we learn something about Joseph. Something I like to think that um, he passed along as the earthly father, at least, to Jesus. The story of Jesus with a woman caught in adultery thrown at his feet comes to mind. Did Jesus learn something that day from Joseph? Because we learn that Joseph is a remarkably compassionate man. And that somehow, even in the devastating deep hurt and anger that had to surround an unfaithful wife, Joseph somehow finds a way to divorce her quietly. That is, without anyone knowing about it, about Mary's pregnancy. And it's fascinating in the text, as soon as he decides to do that, And not before, but as soon as he decides to do that, bing, an angel shows up in a dream and tells Joseph, oops, wrong decision, Joseph. An angel shows up and tells Joseph what's up in a dream. Let's see how Matthew tells us that story. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. That is, go through with the wedding ceremony and the reception. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
Then Matthew tells us all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. What must Joseph have thought when he heard that news? First he hears the news that his fiancée is pregnant. And then an angel shows up in a dream and says, Yep, she is pregnant. I still want you to take her as your wife. And by the way, she's pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you suppose he thought? What would you think if you're Joseph? Yeah, would you think, what? This is... Ridiculous. Do you think the next morning he's thinking about the wedding ceremony that the angel wants him to go through with and what that's going to be like with Mary standing there pregnant? Is is she showing yet, does he think? Will people know? And then does he think, well, if they don't know yet, if they haven't heard the rumor, what happens when we get to that important, penultimate concluding part of the wedding ceremony where I'm supposed to take, we're supposed to go to the bridal chamber. What happens when that doesn't happen and there's no official bedsheet to show? What then? If I'm Joseph, at some point I think, even though it's tough to talk in a dream, (laughs) I might Think of responding to the angel. Do you have any idea how ridiculous this all sounds? And do you have any idea what you're asking of me? What about Mary? Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 where we learn about Mary. Matthew gives us this window into Joseph's reaction and how Joseph is told Luke gives us Mary I'm beginning reading down at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary's very practical. And so she asks, Well, how will this be? Mary asked the angel since I am a virgin. And here comes the angel's ridiculous answer to this 12 or 13-year-old girl. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, Mary, will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Can you see a 12-year-old? 
and maybe her eyes did get wide or she started to, because the angel gives some reassurance, something that she can go check out for herself, perhaps, which she did. Even Elizabeth, the angel continues, your relative is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. What would you do if you were Mary and got this ridiculous news? And, and keep in mind that what the angel was asking Mary to do and to risk literally was her life. He's asking her, telling her she's going to be subject not only to public disgrace, she's going to be subject to the death penalty. And while stonings in the New Testament era were relatively rare, if they did take place, they would take place in such places as conservative, deeply orthodox Nazareth. And so Mary had to be fearful for her life. And she must be thinking, doesn't she, what on earth will Joseph do? What happens to Joseph? And maybe she's thinking, as the marvel of the angelic visit began to wear off, oh, mom and dad, Do you think she told uh, Joseph or mom and dad like right away? Or maybe she waited a, a couple of months, a couple of missed cycles. But whenever she told him, can you imagine the conversation? Did it start out well? There was this angel who told me that I'm going to be a pregnant virgin, and guess what? He was right. I am. I'm pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous stuff. And I wonder if Joseph heard from Mary directly or, or, or through their parents. We're not told who tells him. You know, and whoever first told him, do you think he bought it? You know, he might have believed it. Maybe that's why he took the road of divorcing her quietly as a righteous man, as Matthew calls him. Interesting he uses the word righteous there. Did Joseph decide not to press charges against Mary as was his right? Because some measure of him at least thought, well, maybe God is in this or might be, and so he's just trying to get out of the way before the angel him, reassured him, no, 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 Joseph, it, it's okay, stay, marry her. I've got a lot of questions for, like, for Joseph and Mary when I see him one day. Won't that be fun? I would imagine the two of them will be busy telling their stories for a long, long time and tell us what the rest of the story is. I can't wait to hear it. But for us this morning, how would you have responded to all of this ridiculousness? Oh my goodness, it's too good to be true. Yes, or 
You're asking me to do what? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Maybe we can learn a bit from Joseph and Mary's response. Did you catch it? Joseph never even says a word. All we're told is he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and he married her. His response in the face of this ridiculous hope, obedience. And what about Mary? She responds. She's very vocal. Interesting male-female contrast here. Right? Just kidding. But she responds, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Her response is obedience. And Obedience takes many different forms, but I like this phrase in terms of forming what Joseph and Mary's obedience is. They respond by saying, I'm available and I'm willing to serve, no matter how ridiculous and even in light of how ridiculous it is. I'm available and I'm willing to serve. How will we respond? to this ridiculous hope of Christmas. If we follow Joseph and Mary's examples, then our response to this ridiculous hope should be, God, I'm available and I'm willing to serve. For the next uh, couple of weeks, we'll look at other responses to this ridiculous hope. We'll look at the response of some shepherds. We'll look at the response of a man called Herod. We'll look at the response of the wise men, very different responses, same but different, and maybe that will help us in getting a handle on or inspire us to on how are we going to respond this year to the ridiculous hope of Christmas, the ridiculous hope of Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who gives us hope. Help us, Father, when it feels or seems or even is ridiculous. Help us, Father, to follow in the humble footsteps of Joseph and Mary and to respond by saying, Father, I'm available and I'm willing to serve. Father, we love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction this morning? It's again from the Apostle Paul. It's from the book of 2 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing to a church who is struggling with hope because they're wondering why Jesus hadn't returned yet. And so Paul blesses them this way and us this way today, too. Listen to the words of Paul. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God our Father, who loved us and who Let me try again. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.
We'll see you soon.